Welcome to the reading of Dr. Richard Ganz's book, Psychobabble, The Failure of Modern Psychology, and The Biblical Alternative. Copyright 1993 by Richard Ganz. This book is read and distributed with the author's permission. This MP3 audio file is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books, which offers a large selection of free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed resources on the web at swrb.com. We continue our reading on page 127. Chapter 12. Pre-Counseling Standings. Countless counseling sessions have taught me that two basic kinds of people come for counsel, those who want help and those who don't. Some come wanting to change at any cost. The others come with a preset limit on what they are willing to pay. These folks usually show up wanting to change their boss, pastor, neighbor, child, or spouse. They feel that by coming for counsel, they have done their bit. They definitely do not come to hear how they need to change. My colleagues used to wonder why I almost always preferred the most desperate counseling problems. The reason was simple. Counseling is far more difficult with people who don't have much distress or aren't highly motivated. In the toughest cases where the problems seem insurmountable, those who come desperate for help are more willing to accept what I have to say they have a far greater chance for restoration. This is not to say that desperation is a prerequisite for counseling. Yet it is true that those who are more desperate are more amenable to help. Desperation is often a golden opportunity to share the gospel, and giving someone the good news that Christ can help him should not be seen as taking advantage of an individual. The gospel is good news and it is meant specifically for those beaten down by their sins or who see themselves as abject failures. Generally, most people who come for counsel are not desperate but merely uncomfortable. With a person like that, I first determine whether he really wants to see me. My work is to counsel. Thus, I don't need to work with individuals who aren't interested in receiving counsel. This, of course, doesn't mean that I won't help those individuals. I will, but I make it clear that I am helping at their request. I know that many people are skeptical about counseling at the beginning, often for good reasons. They have been disappointed before, so they hold back. They stand aloof and wait to see how they will be handled. They may not reveal the real problem, but will present a superficial test case first. For this reason, I am careful before terminating a case. I often take a wait-and-see approach, remembering that when a person comes for help, he is brought into contact with the gospel. Should conversion take place, he gets a new heart and is therefore open to a whole new set of attitudes about himself and his problems. There is a third pre-counseling attitude that one encounters as well. Some people beg for help, but will never take it. They want help, 
but not change. They like being desperate, drawing others into their whirlpools of misery. The beauty of nuthetic counseling is that as the counselor demands biblical change of this counselee, the mask drops, and they both understand very early on what they can expect as a result of their time together. Nothing. Until the counselee is willing to make changes and actually accomplish something, it is foolish to waste time with this person. Even if a person wants to change, there are two prerequisites, one for the counselor and one for the counselee, for effective counseling. The counselor must believe that God is sovereign over the lives of both counselor and counselee. Without that fundamental undergirding, the counselor cannot demand the necessary biblical life-changing behaviors. For his part, the counselee must either come with or be brought to a position of submission, not to the counselor, but to the word of God. Submission means that those needing help must honestly admit their situation. They must admit that their problem is their problem, not the problem of a parent or a spouse. The anger or rage is not just something that others provoke, but is something they responsibly acknowledge and are prepared to renounce. In other words, they become accountable. They place themselves before God and confess that they alone are responsible for holding the attitudes that are damaging their lives. Blame-shifting, refusing to be accountable, can be traced back to Adam and Eve. Immediately after eating the forbidden fruit, the first couple hid from their best friend, God, because they were afraid, Genesis 3.10. Until this point, they had communed with God and each other in total openness. There was no hiding, no shame, no embarrassment, no disgrace. Sin changed all that in an instant, an instant that we cannot comprehend because we have never experienced life without sin, as did Adam and Eve. I was afraid because I was naked. When God confronted Adam, he denied his guilt. Instead, he blamed both God and the woman for his sin. It is the woman that you gave me. Eve also blame shifted. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Despite their efforts to extricate themselves from their sin, God found them guilty, and they suffered the consequences. Submission also means counselees seek the power to accomplish change through the Holy Spirit, not relying on their own strength. They must see that all they are, all they have been, and all they ever will be are part of God's wondrous plan. He uses even the former sins to glorify his name. Submission to the hand of God in both the acknowledgement of sin and its relinquishment is critical. Submission means that we dismantle and demolish attitudes and thoughts that lead to destructive living. We must stop making allowances for all the so-called small sins that ultimately cripple us. Persisting in even small sins can have devastating results. Recently, I headed out to visit someone in the hospital. The snow that had fallen in the night on the particular thawed ground was heavy and wet. 
my driveway was blocked by a snowdrift. I decided to try to speed out over the field, which was relatively free of snow. Within fifty feet, the van stopped. Not exactly stuck, but not moving freely either. It was doing a two-inch forward and then slide and dip cha-cha. Never mind, I thought. I have just hit a soft spot. A little more playing around, and I'll be on my way. And that, folks, is exactly what happened, except that instead of being on my way forward, the van and I were on our way down. Tiring of the light-hearted, light-footed approach, I got down to business and tried to gun my way out. I tried forward. I tried backward. I would gain a few inches, but at the same time I was sinking deeper and deeper into the soft muck. The word mire was taking on new dimensions. Mud was flying on every side. Soon I had created four mini sinkholes around each of the tires, and our four-wheel drive van looked, as my daughter said, like the Titanic going down. I stood there in horror, gazing at this sight, wondering how I could have gotten into this mess. The thought came to me, inch by inch, little by little, I am getting myself in so deeply that eventually there will be no way out. It was a time-consuming, messy, expensive, and embarrassing situation, but it did give me an illustration for this book. I am convinced that this is the way life-dominating, sinful habit patterns develop for most of us, inch by inch, little by little. Eventually we find ourselves in a dreadful situation. The question of the day becomes, how do we get out? My mud situation offers some insight. At a certain point, I saw that all my efforts were accomplishing nothing. I saw that to get free, I would need outside help. I couldn't get a tractor onto the field because even with its exceptional traction and size, it too would have sunk deep into the mud. I knew that there had to be a way out, but as yet I did not know what it was. It was not going to be an issue of applying knowledge I already had. For example, tractors pull out stuck cars. I needed new knowledge. Biblical freedom operates in much the same way. God promises that no trial will overtake you, 1 Corinthians 10.13. Yet at the same time, he didn't specifically tell us the way out. He leaves it to us to look carefully at our situation, to pray, and to be open to an honest means of escape. I put together the factors involved in my situation. I needed a piece of machinery that could get out onto the field, light enough not to sink in, with enough traction not to get stuck, yet still have the strength to pull the van out of a heavy-duty muck. I realized that I needed a small four-wheel-drive vehicle for this job. I found a neighbor with just such a vehicle. After several hours of carving new ruts through the field, and grinding mud into every pore of my being, and I'm sure my neighbors as well, I was free. The next day I surveyed the damage. The van went through car purgatory, but oh, that field! The ruts were knee-deep in places. 
the restoration was going to require substantial labor. So it is with sin. Sin has consequences. Thieves, drug users, drunks, adulterers, gossips, gluttons, and murderers all leave behind a trail of destruction that must be cleaned up. Bodies take time and care to heal. Trust takes time and diligence to restore. Financial loss takes time and labor to rebuild. Offenses require time and commitment to be forgotten. When Mike and Ruth came to me for counseling, I sized up them and their situation right away. My judgment turned out to be wrong. They told me that they had come for help because there had been adultery. They failed to mention or note on their information inventory that Mike was a successful pastor and Ruth was everything a pastor's wife was supposed to be. I learned that Mike was always working and his young family was left alone all the time. I had assumed that Mike was the adulterer. It turned out that Ruth was. This young, attractive, openly evangelical woman was committing adultery with every man who came near their home, including delivery boys and even a bill collector. As the story unfolded, I saw a man who had come to despise his wife for her unbelievable infidelity. I saw a woman who had done all she could to punish an inattentive husband, a man who cared more about other people's problems than his own wife's needs. I thought that a church board had sent them for help before the inevitable, as I saw it, divorce. I was surprised to learn that Ruth did not want a divorce. I was startled to learn that Mike did not either. If you think this is some kind of Cinderella story in which everyone lived happily ever after, you were right. But the agony of getting there should not be overlooked. It would have been easy to send them on their way, promising to be faithful and to spend more time with each other. I knew, however, that for even a possibility of success for this marriage, Mike and Ruth had to be extricated from many sins. They also needed to ask and receive forgiveness. We had to develop life principles that would keep them from sinking into those sins once again. It had to be a repentance which brought forth fruit. Luke 3, 8-14 Both of them were quick to acknowledge their sins and ask forgiveness. Mike was not sure how he could forget an almost total betrayal. Ruth, interestingly, had fears that she might commit adultery again. After all, this was a habit she had mastered. Mike was out of the ministry, so he was more able to devote regular blocks of time to Ruth and their children. He was no longer on call 24 hours a day. Ruth knew that she could count on Mike to be there. She stopped looking to other men's arms for the support and affection she needed from Mike. Mike learned to check in with his wife during any time of absence, and Ruth came to see that Mike's work didn't mean she was being abandoned. Mike also learned to pick up warning signals. Ruth learned how to tell Mike her fears and temptations before matters erupted. They left counseling to take a job in a new city, but the real test came when, after several years, Mike had an opportunity to re-enter pastoral work. He accepted that call 
and about a year later, when they came back to town, they made an appointment to see me. They showed me a newspaper clipping reporting that Mike had been voted husband and father of the year over 800 other men. It certainly didn't erase the sins of the past, nor did it completely eradicate the pain and misunderstandings of the past, but Ruth and Mike were well on their way to being the family God had always meant them to be. There is no question about it. Getting out of sin can be extremely complicated and messy. Liberation is impossible without cooperation. The one in need must desire and work toward his extrication. Even after he stops his sinful behavior, the job isn't over. People have to learn how to deal with the temptations to return to sin or with the pride of new accomplishments. They must put off the old habits and put on the new. This is why nuthetic counselors insist on God's sovereign rights and the need for a submissive heart toward Him. First, God is sovereign and requires the submission of His people. Second, the reality is that without His aid and aside from His decrees, authentic and permanent change is impossible. But the alternative to deep and lasting change is deep and lasting sin. This is the alternative that confronted Mike and Ruth. It is the alternative facing each person alive today.